The old pilot's plain tales. Oh, Canada, are UFO. Amid lurid advertisements for how to stumble upon a fortune in gems, you have to buy the Gem Hunter's Guide, of course. How to bend cosmic forces to your will. Uh, you join the Rosicrucians and receive their sealed book or a testimonial from a popular movie star who assures the readers of this scientific magazine that he can't risk throat irritation, so he smokes camels because they're mild, is an article about a new Air Force night fighter, the Scorpion. The first look inside the F-89 shows a cutaway drawing which exposes the innards of a powerful all-weather interceptor. Radar equipped. The plane is powered by two Allison J-35 turbojets with afterburners for bursts of extra power. Considering the dubious nature of some of the articles in this delightful 1950s publication, their description of the Northrop F-89 Scorpion was pretty accurate. The United States Army Air Force had seen a need for an all-weather fighting aircraft to replace the earlier P-61 Black Widow, the Air Force's first purpose-built night fighter. They had specified a twin-engined fighter armed with internal rockets and six machine guns or cannons which could reach 530 miles an hour of the aircraft, not the cannons, just about ensuring that it would have to be jet-powered. Bell, Consolidated Valti, Douglas, Goodyear, perhaps they were going to contribute a balloon, Northrop and Curtis Wright all submitted proposals and two, the Curtis Wright XP-87 Blackhawk and the Northrop XP-89 moved forward to the prototype stage. Three aircraft went into a fly-off, the XF-87, the XF-89 and the Navy XF-3D Sky Knight. Despite being powered by four Westinghouse XJ-34 turbojets, the Blackhawk couldn't reach the required speed. The Northrop aircraft proved to be the fastest, and one test pilot claimed that it was the only real fighter, comparing the other contenders to a medium bomber and a trainer. The newly formed USAF chose the Northrop aircraft to go forward. Jack Northrop's design was a slim-bodied, swept-wing aircraft with a two-man pressurised cockpit and conventional tricycle gear. The two Allison J-35 afterburning turbojets were buried in the lower fuselage and exhausted underneath the narrow rear fuselage. It ended up with a small fin holding a mid-mounted horizontal stabiliser which gave the aircraft the look of a scorpion, the name given to it by the Northrop employees and adopted by the Air Force. However, by the time the aircraft came into service, the F-89 had thin straight wings, a more powerful afterburning engine and the radar-laid gun turrets were replaced by six conventional forward-firing Hispano cannons. 
In the nose lay an ANARG-33 radar for the rear crew member to operate, and the fuel capacity had been increased by adding fixed wingtip tanks. Before we get on to the story of the F-89 participating in the interception of a Canadian intergalactic spacecraft, it is worth mentioning that Scorpion had other claims to fame. Aviation buffs will undoubtedly know that the aircraft participated in the 1950s Howard Hughes movie, starring our aforementioned camel-smoking actor, who wanted his vocal cords unirritated, and Janet Lee. John Wayne called the movie too stupid for words, but it was reportedly Hughes' favourite film, which he watched repeatedly in his later years. The other great story involving the F-89 is often referred to as the Battle of Palmdale. The instigator of this disastrous battle was, as you might have suspected, the US Navy, leading many to think that they should stick to sailing ships and making the occasional Top Gun movie. It all started at Mr. Magoo's Naval Air Station during the development of the AIM-7 Sparrow missile. Various drones were being used to test the missile's effectiveness by volunteering to get shot down, one of which was a Grumman F-6F Hellcat. On a clear day in August 1956, this particular Hellcat, painted bright red, was being prepared by the Navy for its final mission before being sent off to head west over the Pacific Ocean to a final rendezvous with an AIM-7. At the forenoon watch of seven bells, 11.30 in the morning to the Air Force, the brave Hellcat was launched and guided towards the missile range by the Navy. But then everything went a bit haywire. The Hellcat had decided that a better life lay in a new direction, and like the crew of the USS Somers in 1842, it mutinied. The controllers watched in dismay as their target started a gentle left-hand climbing turn to the southeast towards the sprawling city of Los Angeles. The Navy claimed that they had no aircraft available capable of dispatching the drone. One wonders what their AIM-7 bearing fighter was doing at the time. So they called in the Air Force. At Oxnard Air Force Base, some five miles north, sat the 437th Fighter Intercept Squadron, who, I suspect, thought it must be Christmas and immediately scrambled two F-89D Scorpions. In the interceptor were First Lieutenant Einstein, yes, really, and his radar observer, First Lieutenant Murray, followed by First Lieutenant Herleman and First Lieutenant Hale. They headed south in full afterburner and soon caught up with the drone at 30,000 feet, northeast of LA. The drone crossed the city and then circled slowly over Santa Paula, while the Scorpion pilots waited for it to fly over an unpopulated area so that they could attack with their mighty mouse 2.75-inch folding fin rockets. I've previously mentioned the use of unguided rockets in air-to-air combat, and in the 50s they were the latest big thing. A simple ballistic rocket, the 
folding fin aerial rocket Mark IV carried a warhead that could bring down a sizable bomber if it was unlucky enough to get hit. I say that because the Mighty Mouse was not an accurate weapon. As a result, it was generally fired in large volleys, which might have worked well against big formations of large bombers, since on launch the rockets dispersed to cover the area of an entire football field, in which, today, there hid a single wildcat. The Scorpion's first attacks were made in the new completely automatic mode, which, sadly, failed due to a previously unknown design fault, and the mice refused to leave their little holes. After all, there was a nasty wildcat out there. There was, luckily, the opportunity to switch to manual mode, but such was the confidence in the new Hughes attack computer, someone had decided to remove the gun sights, leaving the unfortunate pilots with no way of aiming other than to use their seaman's eye. For those not familiar, the seaman's eye is an old naval term referring to that special quality of judgment which is allotted to experienced sailors. Sadly, these were junior Air Force officers, not seamen. Not to worry, a single hit would suffice to bring down the drone even if it wasn't cooperating and meandering around the sky. They lined up and dispatched 42 rockets in salvos, but were a little dismayed when none hit their target. Another attack ensued, and then another, until 208 mighty mice had been dispatched to no effect whatsoever. In the air, that is. And the drone droned on. Low on fuel, and with their scorpion tails firmly between their legs, the Air Force left the scene and headed home. The score of failures was now a tie, Navy 1, Air Force 1. The Hellcat, having decided that the desert near Palmdale Regional Airport would be a nice place to live, spiralled down and plonked itself into the sand but not before cutting three overhead electric cables in a final reckless gesture. On the ground underneath this impromptu firing range, the inhabitants of Catsteak and Placerita Canyon, the Burmite Powder Explosives Plant and Palmdale, watched with dismay as the rockets hit the ground, exploding and unleashing clouds of shrapnel. Bushfires were started, windows smashed, oil sumps set alight, a car was peppered, a truck was destroyed, and one rocket burst through a front window, ricocheted off the ceiling, ploughed through a wall, and came to rest in a kitchen cupboard. It took 500 firefighters two days to bring the bushfires under control. 1,000 acres were burned out, but amazingly there were no fatalities. Sadly, not so in the story that titles this tale, that of the Canadian UFO. 
Of course, not all Canadian aircraft are classified as UFOs, nor are many people from the cold end of North America thought of as aliens, unless attempting to enter across the 49th parallel, plus the wiggly bits, illegally. But that was the situation on the 23rd of November 1953. The U.S. Air Defense Command radar system had detected an intruder over Lake Superior. The radar operators were tracking the target, in particular those of Sault-Saint-Marie. The area the aircraft was flying through was restricted, so an F-89 from Kin Ross Air Base was scrambled to intercept and identify it. On board was First Lieutenant Monclar with his radar operator, Second Lieutenant Wilson sitting behind him. The weather that night wasn't great, with an overcast cloud base between two and 3,000 tops at five to 8,000 and about 8 miles visibility in snow showers. But that shouldn't have been a challenge for a radar-equipped all-weather night fighter. On a westerly course, initially under the control of Ground Control Intercept Station Naples and then GCI Pillow, the Scorpion was directed to the target at 7,000 feet. They were turned to head 020, which put the intruder at 11 o'clock to the fighter, range 10 miles. The controllers watched as the two radar returns about 150 miles northeast from Kinross Air Force Base, 70 miles off Kiwinor Point, as they closed. As expected during an intercept, the radar returns eventually merged as the fighter came alongside the target, but then the IFF transponder return from the fighter was lost and never re-emerged from the target's large radar return. The F-89 had disappeared. There was concern that the two aircraft had collided, but the single target continued on as if nothing had happened. The Scorpion crew failed to reply to radio calls and could not be found on radar. Despite deteriorating weather conditions, search and rescue action was taken by both the United States Air Force and the Royal Canadian Air Force, but they failed to find any trace of the missing aircraft or its crew. However, rumours abounded. The 50s and 60s were a period of intense interest in the phenomena of alien unidentified flying objects. Amplified by public interest in the space race and compounded by the Cold War, more reports of flying saucers, flying cigars, flying eggs, alien abductions, alien probing, alien lovers and the like occurred than in any other period in history. Unexplained mysteries like vanishing aircraft were immediately and irrevocably connected to visitors from outer space, and the incident of the missing scorpion was no exception. A number of quite believable theories were put forward. According to one, the jet had crashed into the UFO's protective beam like a concrete wall. Others speculated that the jet may have been scooped out of the air and taken aboard the spacecraft so the captured men could teach their alien captors the English language. Over the years, what was now called the Kinross Incident 
or as I like to call it, those terrible Canadian aliens, received even more attention, particularly from a group called the Great Lakes Dive Company. This organization claimed to have searched the lakes with a new wide-trajectory side-scan sonar, and on their first pass, located an object on the bottom. It was a plane, and the scans proved it was an F-89. In addition, they provided sonar images of a disc-shaped metallic structure that resembled every boy's idea of a flying saucer. However, as the media frenzy grew, the dive company cut all contact with reporters and vanished. It was soon discovered that the company had never existed, being unknown to local divers and lacking any official registration or license. Many realised it was a hoax, but believers just assumed the disappearance was, of course, all part of an elaborate government cover-up. The official USAF report indicated that the most likely cause was disorientation, leading to a loss of control and a crash. Equally likely was that the Scorpion, in an attempt to slow to the target's low speed, stalled and span into the cold lake below. The F-89 pilot certainly didn't have a lot of recent instrument practice, only 27 hours 30 in the past 6 months and less than 8 hours of night flying in the past 60 days. The United States Air Force concluded that the target aircraft had been a Royal Canadian Air Force C-47 transport, flying 30 miles off its flight plan, something that the Canadian authorities, being aliens and in cahoots with the government, would not confirm. However, years later, someone found the pilot of that aircraft. In written comments, he stated, I remember the flight reasonably well and just checked my logbook to confirm the date. It was a night flight. We were probably at seven or 9,000 feet over a solid cloud deck below and absolutely clear sky above. Somewhere near Sousa-Marie and north of Kinross Air Force Base, I think the ground station asked us if we had seen another aircraft's lights in our area. I do think I recall them saying at the time that the USAF had scrambled an interceptor and they'd lost contact with it. We replied that we'd not seen anything. A few days later, I received a phone call from somebody at Kinross who was carrying out an investigation on a missing aircraft. I could only tell them that we had seen nothing. That was the last I ever heard of the incident. So, as Mulder says... Unsolved mysteries. The truth is out there. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find us at airlinepilotguy.com. Plane Tales is also a standalone podcast, and if you're enjoying listening to them, then about popping over to Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice and leaving us a lovely review. Many thanks and thanks for listening.